and it's Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. My brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is not put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you are saying. You're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. 
everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at most three, should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. But you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. So I shouldn't be up here. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the Lord says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Amen. That's uh, absolutely terrific. And uh, no, I'm not going to go into those uh, um, verses this morning on women and whether they should remain silent in the church. For those of you who want to know all about that talk, I gave that talk three weeks ago, and um, that was an interesting morning as well. Okay, thank you ever so much, uh, Deborah, for that. <clears throat> well, this is our uh, 15th study in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. And we've entitled the series, The Church That Had a Love Affair with Problems. Because as we know by now, this was a church that had problems all the way through it. There were problems everywhere you looked. And in the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul focuses on things that he had heard about this church. Things that he'd heard on the grapevine, such as they were a church that were divided. And there was sexual immorality amongst some of the congregation. And also, they were taking one another to court, which wasn't very good. And then when we get to chapter 7, the, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul starts answering questions that the church had written to him about. And each of these questions that they ask in the rest of the letter start with the words, now about or now regarding. For example, in chapter 7, verse 1, now regarding the question you asked in your letter. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now about gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters. Chapter 16. Now regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem. And then 16, 12. Now about a brother Apollos. So what's happening here? From chapter 7 onwards to the rest of the letter, Paul is answering questions that he has been asked. And at the start of chapter 12, we have these words, now about gifts of the Spirit, indicating that the church at Corinth, that ancient church 2,000 years ago, had asked Paul certain questions about spiritual gifts. And his answer goes on for three chapters in our Bibles. And it's a wonderful, wonderful flow of thought. 
And I do encourage you, when you get home today, if you get a chance this week to get a notepad out and just read through those chapters in one sitting. You know, the, the, the subheadings and the chapter headings and the verses, they all came about the 16th century. When Paul wrote this, it was a letter as you would write a letter. And just read through those chapters and you get the flow of thought and just jot down on your notepads. Our problem is that although we know that Paul was asked a letter about spiritual gifts, um, the problem is we don't know exactly what that question was that they were asking, which is a little bit frustrating as far as we are concerned. I suppose it's like listening to someone having a telephone conversation. You know, someone in the same room, you can hear all that they are saying, you're listening to one side of their telephone conversation, but you're not really, you can get sort of the idea, you know, what's being said, but not really. You know, on a Sunday evening, Julie speaks to her parents. You know, it's her hour on the phone with her parents. And I'm in the same room very often, and I'm listening, and, you know, sometimes she will mention someone's name. But it's after the conversation has finished that I say to Julie, okay, you just mentioned so-and-so. What were, you, what were you saying that? That sounded really interesting, intriguing, actually. Tell me more. And then when I'm on the telephone to my mother and Julie's in the room, all Julie hears is the sound of silence. <laughs> For about 40 minutes. And then she, you know, I normally say yes or no in, in response to a question that my mother's asked me. And then I next speak... At 59 minutes, 54 seconds, because the first hour is free on Virgin Media, <laughs> and my mother is one for getting her money's worth. And then I say, bye, ma'am. It was really good talking. <laughs> and you see, what we've got here with the Corinthians is that we are listening to one side of a telephone conversation, which is a little bit difficult. We've got to do some detective work here as we read these three chapters together. And Dan has given us some excellent teaching over the last couple of weeks, and he has told us about chapter 12 and chapter 13. And we say, okay, we sort of get the idea of what's going on here, but we're not really sure what those questions are. And it becomes much clearer for us in chapter 14. And the main problem that they had in the church of Corinth was the misuse of spiritual gifts, especially the gift of speaking in tongues. Now, I realize today that in this congregation, there's a wide cross-section of people, as there always is, and there are many of you, I'm sure, you will be those who regularly, in private, pray in that unknown language that God has given you, that you are speaking tongues in your private prayer time. And others of you are probably looking at me right now and thinking, what? What's this all about? And you have absolutely no knowledge of any of this. So let me explain. <coughs> Following the death and resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago came the day of Pentecost, often referred to as the birthday of the church. And on the birthday of the church, God sent his Holy Spirit to the church. This was prophesied many hundreds of years before that in the Old Testament. And when the Holy Spirit came on those early disciples, he came in ways that no one could have possibly imagined. The disciples had been praying for 10 days, 
And then the Holy Spirit came upon them in remarkable ways. First of all, they were changed. Because they were changed from cowards into very courageous men and women. Men and women who were prepared to give their lives for the message of Jesus. And many of them did. They were just transformed as people. And a sign as well of the Holy Spirit's presence on this day of Pentecost, this famous day, this birthday of the church, was that many of them spoke in languages which they had not learned. And the impact on the listening crowds was massive. People in other parts of the Roman Empire who were visiting Jerusalem at the time uh, on pilgrimage were hearing these Galilean disciples speaking in their own native languages, proclaiming and praising God, and they were just absolutely, wow, what's this? Some of them said, they're drunk. And Peter answered them, the pubs are not open yet. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning, or something quite like that. Not quite like that, but, you know, you get the drift. You see, this extraordinary miracle allowed Peter then to tell them about Jesus the Messiah, and 3,000 of them... <laughs> Carry on. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Whatever. 3,000 of them became Christians on that day. Absolutely amazing. Just imagine a Welshman like me, all of a sudden, starting to praise God in Swahili or Polish or Mandarin, languages that I've never learned, and then being understood by people in this church family who understand those languages. It would certainly grab attention, wouldn't it? Or imagine a Brummie, like some of you. Starting to praise God in a language that you've never learned, like English. <laughs> and the rest of us actually understanding you for the first time ever. Yeah, it would be amazing, wouldn't it? <laughs> a couple of friends of mine from Cardiff, uh, they belong to a church. In the center. I'm not going to mention the church's name, but it was a church in Cardiff, a well-known church, that didn't believe all this stuff about spiritual gifts and the like. And they thought this was over-emotionalism over from the wacky fringe, you know, those crazy Pentecostals. And then one summer, they were visiting their daughter in France, and they were, she was on a student placement. And they wanted to go to a, a church, and one day they were just walking the streets and they saw a church down this alleyway and they decided just to go to that church. And they didn't get an awful lot out of the service because it was all in French. Surprise that, you know, it was a bit of a shock. <sighs> Although they were particularly blessed to hear one woman pray, one English woman pray, and she was, prayed so beautifully, so eloquently, it was so inspiring in the prayer that she prayed. And after the service, they, well, thought at least there's one person that speaks our language. So they went up to this lady who prayed this wonderful, wonderful, inspiring prayer in English. And they found out she didn't speak a word of English. Okay? You know, and there was uh, someone who was praying in this unknown language, unknown to her. And that couple left their church in Cardiff, the church that taught that these things are not for today, and they died in the first century, and joined the Pentecostal one. And we read a number of occasions in the New Testament of people 
who were speaking in tongues or other languages when they received the Holy Spirit. And this uh, ability to speak in tongues might be an earth, another earthly language, might be a heavenly language, but it might sound a very, very strange concept for any of you here this morning who might not have heard of this stuff before. But the Bible here speaks of it as a gift that God gives to some Christians that they might be able to pray more effectively. Let's just pull some of the verses from that chapter that we read earlier. In chapter 14, verses 14 and 15, Paul says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Which means, I have no idea what I'm praying. No idea at all. But my inner being is conversing with God, spirit to spirit. And he goes on to say, So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit. I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit. I will also sing with my mind. And for those who have this gift and you regularly pray in tongues in your own prayer times, you will know that this is a wonderful gift because very often, long after you have run out of words to say in your own English language, you have that spirit communication with God, spirit to spirit. Some of you might have uh, come across Jackie Pullinger. Uh, Jackie, a young English girl who left uh, in England in the 1960s and she went to the infamous walled city in Hong Kong and she was just sharing Christ there among the triad gangs and daily ministering to heroin addicts and also to those who are gangsters and she claims that her real breakthrough came when she started praying in tongues every day that there were more instances of, uh, and open, of God incidences and open doors for the gospel and more people becoming Christian and many of the addicts were actually coming off their addictions to heroin without cold turkey and she just found this astonishing this is what she says I would walk down the street bump into a gangster some of them I knew some of them I didn't and they all started to believe in Jesus I saw people healed because I was praying in the Holy Spirit God was able to lead me to people he got ready the problem is, most of us have got an agenda and we say, this is what I want to do, dear Lord, please bless me. But when you pray in tongues, it's the opposite way around. It is, dear Lord, you've got an agenda, and I'd like to play the part you want me to play in it. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? You see, for large parts of 2,000 years, speaking in tongues and prophecy and other gifts of the Spirit have been the missing jewels in the worldwide church but since the early 20th century and the outpouring of the spirit and the emergence of Pentecostalism followed by the charismatic movement the worldwide church has rediscovered these gifts that we read about in the earliest times in the in the first century in New Testament times and not just in Pentecostal churches since the charismatic movement of the 1950s and 60s Anglican churches and Baptist churches and Methodist and even Roman Catholic churches and there are now 550 million Pentecostal Christians across the world who value spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues and prophecy okay let's go back to the letter back to Corinth they had a problem 
over the way that this gift was being exercised in the church gathering. And it would appear that some viewed speaking in tongues as a kind of spiritual badge, a sign of spiritual superiority. And there was a kind of one-upmanship going here. You know, the tongue speakers and those who weren't. And it was rather divisive because it split the church into the haves and the have-nots, those who saw themselves as first-class Christians and those who were the rest. And for them, or for some of them at least, everything was about speaking in tongues. And I've encountered that sometimes over my journey of faith. I've been a Christian now for the best part of 40 years. And sometimes, you know, I've come across Christians say, well, I've, I've, I've had this heavenly language so that I can pray to God. All I need to do now is go to heaven. Everything else is achieved. Tick. That kind of stuff, yeah? And when I was a, a, a new Christian, I became Christian when I was 18 years old and went on some youth retreats. It seemed as if that was the main focus. You know, and then the statistics would be given when you got home to church the following week. So many people became Christians. Tick. So many people spoke in tongues. And sometimes you'd get a more rapturous applause for the second statistic than the first. And that was happening. And that wasn't good. And I'll tell you why in a few moments. But I think it would be good for us to do a whistle-stop tour of what... Paul writes in these chapters because I say there is an argument going on here. And I'd like you to follow me, if you would, in your Bibles, please. In chapter 12, verses um, 4 to 6, Paul says that there are different kinds of gifts, different kinds of service, different kinds of working, but the same God who is at work in all of them. In other words, what he's saying is that tongues isn't the only gift of the Spirit. And these uh, Christians at Corinth had an infatuation with this gift. Everything, it was everything to them. And Paul's saying, no, it's not. And then he goes on in verses 7 to 10 of the same chapter, and he lists nine spiritual gifts with tongues and interpretation of tongues coming last in the list. So what he is saying here is that there are other gifts. It's not all about tongues, folk. And these are only a sample, these nine. There were many others too. In verse 11, he says there that the Holy Spirit is the one who decides to, who, who gets what. So what's the message? He's basically saying, don't try to do the Spirit's work for him. If the Spirit is wanting to give you this gift of tongues, then you will have that gift. If not, not. Chapter 12, verses 12 to 20. Paul here uses this wonderful illustration of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is made up of many parts, but it's one body. And what Paul is saying there, that no one part of the body can say, because I'm not another part of the body, I don't belong to the body. And that's exactly what these Christians were doing in Corinth. They were saying, because I am not like that person, because I am not a person that speaks in tongues, well, I'm not really up to it. I'm not up to much. And there was that kind of inferiority complex that was caused there. And then in verses 21 to 26, Paul argues from the other point of view, from the superiority complex. There were those who felt that they'd arrived because they were speaking in tongues. And quite possibly they were looking down at other people. 
But Paul says to them, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Verse 27 to 30, Paul now gives a list of gifts that God has given to the church and then asks a series of rhetorical questions. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? And the answer obviously is, well, I'm glad three of you are awake anyway. No, rhetorical question, no. And then he finishes the list, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? And again, the answer is no. And they needed to hear that, you see. Not only Christians of the first century, but also Christians today. Because some will look at others in a derogatory way, in an inferior way, if they don't have a particular gift. That's not so. And Paul combats that. In um, verse 31, he says, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Now, Paul is certainly not anti-spiritual gifts or anti-charismatic, as some people claim. But he wants them to be used correctly. And that's what chapter 14 is all about. Dan last week spoke in chap to us about chapter in 13. He reminded us that Paul doesn't at this point just decide to do a thesis on the subject of love. He changes subject, it's, it appears. But no, it's not. It's, it, chapter 13 is in between chapter 12 and 14, and it's the same subject. And what Paul is saying here is that um, if you're acting in a superior way and making other Christians feel inadequate or inferior, then you're not exercising love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. We've heard that many times, haven't we, in wedding services. I love the way that the message puts the last part of that. I am nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate if we, have no, if, if we don't have love. That leads us then on to chapter 14. And you see, we have to understand chapter 12 and 13 to really understand chapter 14. Paul in chapter 12 has laid down the theology of all of this. In chapter 13, he has laid down the ethics of this. And now he comes to the nuts and bolts. In chapter 14, he is dealing with the practice of spiritual gifts in the church. And this is what he has to say right at the start. Chapter 14, verse 1, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Okay. Let's see if we can understand this together. Speaking in tongues is directed to God. <clears throat> it's a prayer language. Speaking in tongues allows our spirit to pray rather than our intellect. And it's a good gift. And when we pray in tongues, says Paul, we are edified, we are built up, we're encouraged. Our faith is strengthened. But there's also a downside. And the downside is this. If anyone should hear you speaking in tongues, they won't have a clue what you're talking about. They won't have a clue what that, what's going on. It will make no sense to them at all. It, it, it sounds like gibberish. You know, when I first heard someone praying in tongues for the very first time in the church that I belonged to in Swansea, I nearly fell off my chair. I remember saying to someone afterwards, did he really say she came on a Honda? Or I love a Shandy? Did you really say that? You know, it's me as a young Christian, innocent, just understand what, what's going on here? Bit spooked. And Paul says, 
Speaking in tongues is essentially between the person and God. However, if a person is prophesying, the person who prophesies is speaking on behalf of God to the people in their own language for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. And that's why Paul says to them, I wish that all of you would speak in tongues. And make no mistake about it, it's a wonderful gift. But what he goes on to say then, in the context of church worship service, where there may be those who are not Christians, I would rather, rather have the church prophesy. Verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And the only caveat here to tongue speaking in public is that someone interprets the tongues that they have given so that other people can be drawn in and understand what is happening. But reading between the lines here, it would appear that Paul gives that option rather begrudgingly. And Paul is clear. It's prophecy, not tongues, in a gathered church together. Now, many Pentecostals believe this. They believe that if someone speaks in tongues and that tongues is interpreted, it's the equivalent of giving prophecy. And I believe that that is incorrect. And I'll tell you why I, I believe that that's incorrect. And some Christians will also speak about giving a message in tongues. There is no such concept, actually, as a message in tongues. That is risen over the years through Pentecostals. That is not a scriptural teaching as far as Paul is concerned. I'll explain why in a moment. First of all, prophecy. It's given in the language of the people. It's from God to the people, and it's given in their own language through, um, through, an, through a Christian sharing that. And that message is downward. It's from God to the people. With, the with, with, with tongues, rather, it's a prayer language. And it's from people, Christians, to God, and it's upward. So reason this out with me. If that tongues is being interpreted so that other people are benefited from that, which way is it going to go? Is it going to go up or down? Well, obviously, it's going to go up because it's an interpretation of that person who has spoken in tongues. And again, if you look at verses 15 to 17, in verse 15, Paul says, pray with my spirit, sing with my spirit. Verse 16, praising, thanksgiving. Verse 17, giving thanks. All of those words where he speaks about tongues are upward. It's praying, it is uh, singing, it is praising, it is thanking. And Paul never, ever speaks about a message in tongues because the inference there and the implication is when Pentecostal people speak about this is that God is somehow using someone to speak in tongues and then for a message from him to be given to the church for their strengthening. No, that's not right. Because when you have someone giving tongues and then an interpretation that follows, doesn't equal prophecy at all. And um, what you have is, or at least should have, is the interpretation that goes upward. 
and that is through singing, through praising, through thanking, but it's never a message from God to his people. And this, that's an area that many Christians, I feel, get absolutely wrong. Okay, it doesn't get more complicated than that. And Paul says that if we can't grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, then he's a foreigner to the speakers. Since you, verse 12, are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. And then Paul paints us a wonderful picture of what the Corinthian church service was like in verse 23 through to 25. He says, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Imagine the scene. You know, we get everybody in the church just absolutely just singing and shouting out in tongues and there's commotion going on. And someone coming in who doesn't understand all of this and say, oh my word, crazy people, what's going on here? Totally out of control. And instead of being drawn closer to Christ, that person will actually be in turned away from Christ. And maybe the exception to this, I would say, would be when Christians are attending a meeting with only Christians present, like a life group, maybe, possibly, on encounter evening. But certainly not on a Sunday morning service the way that we have morning services here. And Paul continues, but if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their heart are laid bare. That's really interesting. Really, really interesting. Because I know that many of you have come to faith over the years through what you have heard on a Sunday morning. You know, you're very rational people, some of you. And, you know, that's the way that you are grabbed. God grabs you because, you know, uh, you, you, you love biblical teaching, you love biblical teaching which is practical. And that's the thing that grabs you. And for some people, they're totally resistant to that. You know, they, well, what's that guy blabbing on about at the front, you know? And the thing for you, perhaps, is th more through the emotions, through music, through singing, through the words of songs. And they are what really grab you. But you know what? Some people are resistant to both of those areas. And it's the prophetic, where God speaks through someone in a prophetic way and hits the nail on the head. Absolutely. That's where I'm at. And that's what I can imagine Paul was speaking about here. And we'll, we'll come back to that in a few minutes of what that might look like in church life. And he finishes there so that they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Now, Paul is not speaking of everyone prophesying at the same time, but taking turns in prophecy. And he says in verse 29, so that others should weigh carefully what is said. Why on earth, if someone says that they are speaking on behalf of God, that God is speaking through them for the benefit of the church, why should we then weigh what is being said? Well, two reasons. The first reason is we need to weigh what's being said to discover if what is being said is for me personally. Yes? Hello, are you there? Is this for me personally what this person is saying? Therefore, we need to weigh it in that way. Secondly, we need to weigh it because all prophecies are only part divine and part human. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 9, 
For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. In other words, when we are with Jesus, when we're there face to face, we don't need such things as prophecy. We will know fully then, but we prophesy in part. So no prophecy that anybody gives is 100% God and 0% the person who is giving the prophecy. There's always a mixture of inspiration and humanness. And some people are especially gifted in this area. And you know, you know think there's, there's a higher sense of inspiration when they speak. And I sense here in reading Paul, because this is very much practical instruction for those Christians, he's very much down to earth. He was far more down to earth than the Corinthians were, actually. And he tried to demystify these spiritual gifts. My old pastor used to say to me, spiritual gifts are naturally supernatural, obviously. But they're also supernaturally natural. And Paul shows that, that when a person speaks in tongues or they prophesy, they're not taken over by God. You know, God doesn't do that. God doesn't take over someone's vocal cords so that they have no choice in what they say and the way that they say it. That's bad theology, bad practice as well. When I first became a Christian in a uh, church in Swansea, there were such things exercised within the, uh, the church, and they were always given in King James, King James Version uh, of the Bible, which, as many of you know, was written in 1611. And these words then appear to have a certain mystique and authority about them, almost as if every word was from God and that the prophets had no control over what they said. And that simply is not so. Look at what Paul writes there in verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak, and then others should weigh carefully what is said. If a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So in all the congregations, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. So, you know, you should never really have anybody bursting out in tongues or giving a prophetic word in the middle of the pastor preaching. Please don't. <laughs> and then say, sorry, pastor, I couldn't help it. I had no choice. God made me do it. Well, that's nonsense, says Paul. Absolute nonsense. But it appeared that some of this stuff was happening in the church at Corinth. And you see, I, along with Paul, would say to Tamworth Elim Church, I wish that you would all speak in tongues. There, I've said it. Privately. And when you come together as a church, that you would all prophesy. Not all at the same time. That would be chaotic. Not all in the same service. That would be tiresome. But to be available to God for him to use us and speak through us for the benefit of others within the context of whichever Sunday morning we turn up to. So that you would speak to the church family. So who can prophesy? Potentially anyone who is a Christian. Anyone who has the spirit of God living within. You might be a Christian for 60 years. You might be a Christian for six days. God is a God who loves to communicate to his people. And, uh, you know, don't think that this is all about certain people who have been Christians any length of time or, or are incredibly eloquent and articulate. It's not. 
So what might this look like? My word, time is going on. In practical terms, I'm going to be really, really practical and down to earth here, okay? And what I'm going to give you are guidelines. Okay, some practical guidelines. Don't use King James language. You see, prophetic words are for the benefit of others. So let's not use language which was written in 1611. God is communicating to us. And I don't know, this might be a shock to you. God doesn't speak King James language. Okay? And we don't speak King James language. So if God is communicating a message to us, he knows the language that we speak. So I would say to you, you know, if you're from Tamworth, pure Tammy will be fine. <laughs> All right? Well, it's a language of heaven because it's so unearthly. Secondly, have a submissive attitude. You see, all prophecies are to be weighed. So therefore, I think a helpful approach would be something like this. I believe that God has laid this on my heart, and I just want to share it, and then share what you believe that God is laying on your heart. Or, please, would you weigh these words? We're going to weigh them anyway, even if you say, you're the, thus saith the Lord at the end. We're going to weigh them. But, you know, that gives us sort of a, an approach which is far more submissive and humble. <coughs> Please don't speak in the first person. I know this is essentially a style thing. Where someone might say, I, the Lord, speak to thee, my people. Repent. <laughs> I think a much better way would be something like this. Hi, everyone. I know this sounds a little bit harsh, and I'm a bit nervous saying this, but I believe that God is calling us back to him. Essentially, same message. Okay? But the person who is speaking in the first person as if they're speaking on behalf of God are giving the impression that every single word that they are uttering is every single word that God is wanting them to utter and they're saying everything from God and God's words are their words and their words are God's words how can you weigh such a prophecy as that? Fourthly prophecy is for the building up encouragement and comfort of God's people it is not um, to criticize others or to condemn others. And when we are talking about prophetic words, please don't think of Old Testament prophets here. You know, full of words of God's anger against sin and retribution, or even a, uh, a John the Baptist kind of character with, who wore camel hair clothes and locust remains stuck between his teeth. The New Testament gift of prophecy is altogether different. It is for strengthening and for edification. You see, I really do want to hear from God through the prophetic. And my desire is that we as a church would have that prophetic element in our services. I don't want hype. I would so love humility. Where young people, old people, mature Christians, young baby Christians, have ears inclined to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church. I was told many years ago that there's nothing better in this world than a good Pentecostal church and nothing worse than a bad one. 
I tend to agree with that, actually. I've been a Pentecostal pastor for the best part of 30 years and a Pentecostal believer for the best part of 40 years, during which time I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm sad to say this, but often the bad when it comes to the use of spiritual gifts within the church, and I don't want you to be that way. And of the roles that I've had over the years in leadership roles in churches and churches I've visited, the best example of what I've been talking about this morning came not from a Pentecostal church, but came from an Anglican church. An Anglican church I visited on a few occasions. And some of you might know this uh, Anglican church as sole survivor Watford. And their church service on a Sunday morning is remarkably like ours. It really is. But towards the end of their service, they have a ministry time where people are prayed for. And anyone who feels that they might have a prophetic word for the church family are invited to share that with various leaders who are walking around the place or are at various stations within the room so that they can share something that they believe that God has given them on that morning. It may be a Bible verse. It may be a picture. Maybe a thought. Sometimes the person is invited up to the front to share that. Often it's the leaders who will do the sharing. And the church weighs what is being said. As I say, naturally supernatural, but supernaturally natural. No hype, lots of humility. And Paul's final words in this chapter, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Amen.